Welcome, everyone, to the Dot Podcast. Today, my guest is Jackie Reed, and uh, Jackie and I met at the Como camp in early May of 2023 in uh, Vienna, Austria, and along with uh, her husband, Stephen, and they're both into software, but today I'm interviewing Jackie. Um, she's an internationally recognized software an enterprise architect. She's the founder of uh, the company Read the Architecture, which uh, is consultancy and training services. And uh, what we're going to discuss today is her authorship of the book Communication Patterns, a guide for developers and architects. And I think this is an extremely important topic. So I look forward to discussing this with you, Jackie. Welcome. And if you could um, just segue into your little bit more background about yourself. Hi Vaughan, hi everybody. Thank you for having me on the Adopt podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was a really interesting meeting at Como Camp. Got uh, lots of collaborative modelling there, and I think that's very important. Uh, an amazing tool for communication. So that leads quite well into my book, which is on communication patterns. Um, so about myself, I have been a .NET developer in uh, previous roles and then I moved into software architecture and I've done various different types of architecture from sort of the more technical and software to solution and enterprise and I've always found that my soft skills have complemented my technical skills when it comes to the solution architecture and that's partly what uh, this book is about and then um, 2021 I actually won a software architecture kata with O'Reilly Media. And since then, um, I've taught online with them, written uh, this book, Communication Patterns, and I've also started uh, my own consultancy, which you mentioned, Vaughn. So I really love to teach and learn and sort of especially connecting all these big, diverse ideas together. And that's kind of where this book has come from, really pulling all these ideas together and getting, uh, finding patterns and anti-patterns which apply from one domain into another. Yeah, I have to say, if uh, things went the way they should, like every programmer in the world should buy your book, right? I mean, just uh, (laughs) our reputation for being communicators is really bad, abysmal. And uh, I think we can improve a lot. So hopefully we have many readers of your book so that we can all get much better at communication. So tell us, well, I mean, maybe that leads into my uh, next question is, why did you write the book, Communication Patterns? Well, as I mentioned before, um, I've always found that I've been quite good at the soft skills. And... I realised that this didn't necessarily come naturally to other people. And I've always been interested in lots of different domains. So um, it's not just technical domains. This is things like uh, personal productivity or uh, knowledge management, things like that. And I realised that I was pulling all these different ideas into my work and thought, okay, other people aren't doing this. So let's bring it all together for people so they've got a reference that uh, they can use and although it is aimed at developers and architects um, it's really kind of useful for all sort of technical people and knowledge workers in fact uh, Rebecca Parsons she 
kindly wrote uh, a praise quote for me. And it, she said, anybody would be, uh, it would be useful for anybody, particularly leadership positions. So it's uh, kind of a bringing everything in together. Great. Yeah. So Rebecca Parsons is CTO of ThoughtWorks. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Well, she was CTO. She's now CTO Emerita. Oh, so I, I don't okay. think they wanted to let her go. <laughs> okay. Uh, pretty important person and in, in a very uh, successful consultancy. So, okay. Well, let's talk about some of the thing, the topics in the book. What you know? What are the the overall maybe parts of the book? And then after we do that, we can kind of dive into each of those parts separately. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great to me. Overall, it's communication, but that is a very wide spectrum. And many people might think of the written and the verbal, and I cover those in one of the parts along with nonverbal communication. There's also visual communication, and that's really a huge part of all human communication. And it actually forms, although it's one part of four, it actually forms over a third of the content of the book, if you look at it page-wise. And that's partly because there's lots of pictures, uh, but also because uh, it's very important. And that's one of the reasons I put that first in the book. Wait a minute. Then, Let me just get this straight. Um, a book on visual communication that actually has visuals in it? Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you know, it's amazing to me that how many books are talking about very visual things and they they don't have many illustrations in them. So thank you for that. That's true. There's lots of illustrations in this one. And there's a few of them which you talk a lot about colour. And for those people who buy the physical copy of the book, of course, it's printed in grayscale. And one of the patterns in there, I talk about the fact that you need to account for when things are in grayscale. And so you'll see in the book how you can make sure that things look okay in grayscale and also what to do when people really need to see them in colour, which for some of the figures is a link to a colour version. I think there's about four of them where you really need to see the colour. And so they're going to be on the accompanying website for anyone who has the physical copy of the book. So you actually get to see things really properly in action in this book. Good which is uh, is quite good. Yes. Then uh, other sections of the book, I also look at the communication of knowledge, including documentation, which is a word a lot of people don't like, but um, you'll like that section. And then the fourth part of the book is all about the remote aspects of communication, because teams and companies are more often distributed now, and that affects the way we communicate much more than we think about really. Nice. So let's uh, go into each one of those. If, if you don't mind, what about part one, visual communication? Yeah, so this is the part that really started the whole book for me. And this was a bit of a passion of mine. And some people might say I'm a bit picky with diagrams and would uh, pick out the things that I thought could be improved in lot of diagrams. And so that's what I've done here. There's actually, uh, I think, six chapters in this part so it's the, the biggest part of the book. And it's all split up into sort of overarching themes like um, accessibility and narrative and composition. 
And one of the reasons that visuals are the most important part, really, are that they're probably the bit that your audience is going to spend the most time looking at. And in fact, sometimes they might be the only bit some people look at. They might You might have written a lot to go with your visuals, but um, it might not be looked at at all. And they're often uh, the best way to actually communicate concepts and ideas and can be a lot easier to understand than text. And especially if you've um, got people with different native languages as well. So explaining something in a diagram can really help with that. So I start with some of the foundation or sort of visual concepts, and that's where I think any reader should make sure that uh, they start and make sure that they consistently do those before they try out any of the other patterns and anti-patterns in the book. And one of those is audience, which is something that most people are familiar with, sort of taking into account who your audience is. But one of the main bits that I go into is the fact that you need to consider what you need from your audience as well as what they need from you. And that's one of the main aspects that people forget. But uh, there's lots, lots more bits covered in that uh, audience pattern. Then other aspects, I mentioned accessibility earlier, and a lot of people kind of just think about screen readers and alternate text when it comes to accessibility. And apart from the alternate text, it's often forgotten about with visuals. But uh, one of my favourite anti-patterns here is I call it a relying on colour to communicate. And you'll probably have seen this where there's a presentation and or uh, documentation and or diagrams and the presenter is kind of relying on the audience being able to distinguish between, uh, say, the colour of a, one border or box and another. So maybe they've put new things that are going to be created in pink or purple or something like that. And then the things that are going to be decommissioned are in red. And there's no other difference between them other than the colour. And there's certain people who've got uh, colour blindness. It's going to be difficult to discern those. And even if you're thinking about things like projector calibration, that can make your colours look very, very different if you're giving a talk. And so there's lots of ways in there for uh, helping with that. And one of those is uh, to use pattern as well. So you could, it's as simple as doing something like a dashed coloured border around a box rather than a solid one. And that way, if you're talking about it, you can say the dashed red box, or you could put it in a key. And then if it's produced in grayscale as well, then you've got that differentiation. So that's uh, one of my accessibility uh, ones in there. And it's also, uh, I also go into what to do if you've got a diagram that you can't or don't have time to change. And this is something that happens quite often where someone else has created a diagram. Maybe you don't have the source file. Maybe you don't have time to change it, but you need to present it to somebody or you need to put it on a web page or something and you look at it and it's absolutely tiny because it's just this huge diagram. And many people, I think, have these huge diagrams. But the basic idea of this one is that you split it up and show part of that diagram at a time as you're talking through it or uh, with the text with it. But you need to actually maintain that context 
with the other parts of the diagram, you need to make sure you need to split it in the right places so people can still follow it. And you need to make sure that uh, you keep things in there like a key or any other information that people need, like footnotes. And that's a couple of my favourite patterns from the visual, but there's an awful lot more in the book. I've discovered that I can't even fit it all into a full day course when I'm running training. It's uh, probably at least a two day course for all of the uh, patterns in that part. Yeah, amazing. Um, just a few comments. I mean, if you go way back to, I think the, would it be maybe late 1990s, there's a, a person named Peter Code, which is a, a great name for a programmer, right? It wasn't spelled C-O-D-E. I think it was C-O-A-D or something like that, but he pronounced it Peter Code. Um, he was the uh, founder of a UML tool called um, Together. Uh, Together J actually was uh, centered around Java. <clears throat> and uh, he was big on color, having a lot of meaning, right? So he he uh, wrote this book called UML and Color. I believe it was him or it may have been someone else, but that was his main topic, UML and Color. So it's recognized as very important because the colors that he chose, which were not many, but they communicated, I think it was four or five important roles in the software. So that's um, a good indication, right? That, that I think you're on the right track. Um, another comment that I have is you, you mentioned uh, putting like a dashed border around one of the diagram elements. What about a symbol like an icon in, in one of the corners? Does that does that seem yes, to help? Yes, symbols or? are also in there. That's uh, okay. that's one of the, the few things that uh, are in there. But as I said, there's uh, an awful lot in there. Mm. Um, but on the subject of names, I used to know a uh, developer called Chris Sharp, who uh, was a C Sharp developer. There you go. So. <laughs> yeah. And then for diagramming tools, do you recommend any specific tool? Like, I imagine you probably want to have some kind of a either template or like um, um, palette or something like that, where you can just kind of like duplicate some elements so they they already have some pre-defined meanings, like the symbols or the da dash borders or something, anything like that. Yes, I normally use. Um, uh, so they call it Draw.io or Diagrams.net. I don't think they've completely decided. It used to be Draw.io, then they changed it to Diagrams.net. Now it seems to be Draw.io again. So I'm going to call it Draw.io. Um, it's uh, free and open source. So it's what I recommend people use when I'm doing my training courses. And it's so much easier to use than things like Visio. And they do have all the different um, sort of libraries and you can create your own libraries as well. So they've got things like um, C4 library for the uh, C4 model, and they have lots of cloud, cloud outcomes in there as well. So that's my favourite. Um, but I also know somebody who's writing a completely new one at no at the moment um, called Nifty. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that coming out and uh, testing that with him. It's uh, Alistair Jones working on Nifty. Interesting. Is that online right now? Can you see anything about it? Um, I think it's so new, it's not out yet. 
<laughs> Very good. We'll look for that for sure. Um, what about modal, uh, or I, I should say multimodal? So yeah, you you have to communicate more broadly, I guess. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, I've got a, a section that I call multimodal because it covers uh, the written, verbal and nonverbal elements of communication, which are all very important as well. And one of my favourite uh, patterns or anti-patterns in there is called acronym HELL. In fact, that's one of the anti-patterns. And that one often sneaks into diagrams as well. And it happens when people assume or forget um, that others maybe don't understand various acronyms. And this is usually due to the curse of knowledge, which I talk about a bit in the book. And that's where you forget kind of what you know compared to others. And you might just start going on about things and other people don't know what you're talking about. So it's, it's very easy to fall into that one because we all know so much and we forget that we've learned all these things. And so with acronyms, it's very easy to misinterpret an acronym. And even if anyone, everyone in the audience is in the same domain or even the same job role as you, it's a bit like uh, the ubiquitous language in DDD where you've got each subdomain and they can have either different meanings for the same term or different terms for the same thing. And so one acronym can mean something completely different to different people, or it doesn't mean anything at all. And I, my favourite one that I like to give an example of is uh, BLT. And my audiences usually tell me that that's uh, bacon, lettuce and tomato. They're delicious. Which, um, uh, yeah, yes. nothing like that. <laughs> but then I also tell them, well, or could it be business leadership team? or basic language translator, or bulk loading tool, or even be like that. and uh, That would be disappointing. Kind of them... Anything other than <laughs> yeah. bacon, lettuce, tomato is it... disappointing. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But it could be any of those things, or it could be something else. People sometimes just make up acronyms. And so I particularly like sort of calling out that anti-pattern and getting people to think about their use of acronyms. And that happens in... Uh, in writing and in uh, diagrams and things. But the thing I tell people to do is if you can uh, define the acronym and say the acronym, so give people both of those, then it helps people to learn. And I've worked with a lot of, uh, sort of trainees or associates in the past, and I always try to say the acronym. So I'd say BLT, bacon, lettuce and tomato, or whatever it was. And then they get to learn that because other, other times people will just say BLT to them or just say bacon, lettuce and tomato. And so they get that association and get to learn it. So that's my main uh, main tip with that one. Good. And I also look at some of the... Um, I also look at some of the other sort of writing, uh, things like how to structure your technical writing. And I think this is something that a lot of... Uh, knowledge workers, whether you're a developer, an architect, you probably don't look at that too much. And if you're a technical writer, you've probably done some training on this, but otherwise you probably haven't. And so I've gathered together quite a few different sort of 
tips and tricks and patterns in this bit. So you can improve your writing, things like uh, short and precise sentences and paragraphs. Those make it easier and quicker to read and understand. Whereas I think a lot of us are prone, I've definitely been very prone in my book to uh, going, having these sort of long run-on sentences about things and then I have to go back and sort them out afterwards. And these are all for sort of your technical writing, but they can be applied to all your, your writing kind of emails and all your messages as well. And they, they have a big impact. Very good. Um, definitely important. Yeah, not like any authors ever have problems with stream of consciousness kind of prose, right? We just, um, oh, I forgot this little bit. Let me just keep writing. And yeah, and it turns into this convoluted sentence or paragraph, that, you know, even worse paragraph. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, like in any uh, of this topic, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. I, I just, you know, thought of this. Um, what about sort of the relationship of diagrams or any kind of communication. So for example, let's say an architecture diagram um, that's not driven by use cases or scenarios versus one that is. Do you, I wonder if you talk about that at all, because to me, it, it, one of the big missing pieces in a lot of architecture diagrams is, okay, I see technology all, all over the place, right? But why, like, why are we using that technology? Is it, you know, we're using event sourcing and CQRS? Yay, you know, but that has nothing to do with actually why the architecture exists. Anything like that? Well, in uh, one part of the book, I talk about um, using uh, architecture decision records and also how you need to link those to, um, or link to those as well in your documentation. So say you're looking at that diagram and it's using event sourcing, there should be some kind of note or link on that diagram to say, we decided to use this in this ADR, this architecture decision record. See how I uh, defined my uh, acronym there. <laughs> and then in that architecture decision record, you have all that information as to why you did use that. So then when somebody says to you, well, why are we using uh, whatever we've chosen? You can say, oh, let's have a look at the architecture decision record. And then you don't even have to explain it or keep it in your head yourself. But they've got that information. And then they might say, well, you've said we've chosen it because of this and because of that but things have changed now. And then you can have that conversation and see whether that architecture decision record does need to be revised. And that might lead to some changes later on. But linking all of your documentation together, I talk about that in the knowledge section. There's a fourth part of your book on remote communication or distributed communication. Why is that such an important part? With the pandemic, we've ended up a lot more uh, distributed and with a lot more remote working than we had before. And it was a big scramble at the beginning. Some people obviously already working from home, but a lot weren't. And a lot of people kind of think that they got it sort of worked out now. But if you 
consider how many companies, even the ones who make the remote communication tools, they're trying to get their employees back into the office more now. Even though there are companies out there who are sort of thriving as either fully distributed or hybrid organisations. And so in this section, uh, I dig into sort of the three sort of three main areas. There's time, uh, which has its own chapter. Then there's channels, which are methods of communication. And there's also some overarching principles of remote communication that I go into. And I go from sort of simpler techniques like ensuring everyone who's been sent an email is clear on the time zone and the date of the meeting. You'd be amazed how many emails I see where it's really not clear what actual time zone it is. And you just know that there's somebody who's in uh, US Eastern and someone who's in Central European and someone who's in uh, GMT. And you think, well, (laughs) you've just put 4pm. That's not particularly useful. And uh, it even touches on dates as well, because dates are you uh, written very differently in uh, different parts of the world. I've had many emails from uh, American colleagues where I think, oh, what's that date? <laughs> because it just says something like seven slash eight. <laughs> yeah, that's always useful. Uh, date, dates work out okay in, in uh, US or European if, if um, or UK, right? I've got to get that right. But they work out okay as long as the day is greater than 12, right? So... The day is greater than 12, yeah. then we know exactly what it means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my main tips for that are either to write something like um, 12th July <laughs> or to uh, put the, the day, uh, sorry, the yeah the day last, put the year, then the month, then the day. Because if you start with the year, it's always the month and the day. And then people definitely know what they're going, what's going on there. And it but, sorts uh, well too, right? If you use yes. it, sorts well. <laughs> Everybody likes to sort. That's sort of some of the simpler ones, and it goes through into sort of more complex decisions about whether your communication should be synchronous, which is where it's real time, like a meeting, or whether it can be asynchronous, where the recipients kind of read and, if they need to, respond on their own timetable. And many people don't realise how disruptive synchronous communication can be to people's work and that asynchronous is an option. And there's lots in there about working out which which sort of way you can communicate, whether it should be asynchronous. And it's vital really to get that right so that people can get their best work done. So, for example, synchronous is quite good when you want to generate uh, sorry, generate ideas or sort of build rapport for things like a, a project kickoff. Or if you're recording a podcast, then that's got to be synchronous, isn't it? But um, asynchronous is very useful when you're doing things like reporting progress or gathering feedback. So an example of that would be an ADR, an uh, architecture decision record. And you can use that to make a decision and gather feedback on it without everyone needing to be there at the same time. And often you can you should actually split it between the two. So it's not just a question of, oh, should we have a meeting for this or should we um, use messages and email? You should actually 
use email before having a meeting so that people can be prepared. And then you can use email or other messaging after the meeting as well so that all the follow-ups are done. So it's not just a question of whether it should be one or the other. It's a question of which bits need to be asynchronous and which bits need to be synchronous. And so there's uh, lots of of patterns and ideas in there for how you can work that out and also what the different options are as well. And with the principles and things, uh, one of the key things about remote work uh, that I think organisations get wrong is this thing called remote friendly. And it's actually not particularly friendly at all. And uh, so it's a bit of a misnomer. It's where remote working is seen as a benefit of working for the organisation. But overall, it actually ends up meaning that people who are in the office tend to be better off than those uh, who work hybrid or remotely. They get the they get to be seen more. They end up being the people who are promoted. They're the people who always get the option to give input. And one of the things I cover in the book is a concept called remote first. And the key differences are that it puts everyone on a level playing field, which is brilliant for people's morale and sort of retaining people. And it, the other key difference is that it's the output of people is valued rather than the hours worked. So it doesn't matter if you're seen to be sitting there in the chair working or not, which is where if it's remote friendly, people who are in the office in the scene are the ones who are sort of noticed by managers. And this seems to be, I think, the key difference between those organisations that thrive as a hybrid or remote sort of organisation and the ones that are calling for their employees to return to the office at the moment. And when remote work is encouraged or expected with the remote first, the organisations kind of essentially run um, as if everyone's remote, even if they aren't. And you end up getting the the full benefits of this remote workforce. And in the book, I mentioned that some of those benefits are actually similar to some of the benefits you get from uh, moving to the cloud. So you can scale your workforce up and down without having to worry about the capacity of your physical office, whether you've got enough space in there or whether you're paying too much for the office or too little. It's very much like in the cloud. And with business continuity, um, with the cloud, you obviously can set up lots of different things. But when you think about a remote workforce, if everybody has to come into one office, but there's a power cut or a huge storm, then there's not going to be much work that goes on. But if you've got people, even in different parts of the same country, who are working from home, then people can get on with things. And I think the big biggest benefit of it is, as I was saying before, about employees feeling they're all kind of on an equal standing. I think a lot of people, a lot of companies at the moment are finding it hard to retain people. And if you have got happy people, then even if you're not paying as much as a competitor, a lot of people really value how they feel about their job over how much they're being paid. And so there's an awful lot in there on, uh, on how you can become remote first rather than remote friendly.
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, as I've seen it, the pandemic, as you said, has not only, it didn't only cause remote work naturally because of the pandemic itself, but most companies that I've worked with are still working remotely. So if I'm working here at home, even with someone in Europe or elsewhere, it really doesn't matter, right? Times of, I mean, it matters a little bit because I might be nine hours off of Europe right now, which I am, uh, but still you, you can have a, a one or two hour session together and accomplish a lot that way. So I think it's very important. I think it's here to stay. Nothing is going to change about remote work. I mean, maybe less of it going on uh, forward, but I think for, like you said, successful companies um, who are keeping their employees happy, it's just going to continue. Yes. And the synchronous and asynchronous sort of aspect um, applies back to the communication of sort of knowledge and the documentation as well. So with uh, using things like ADRs, that means that people can contribute to them and access them easily, even if they're in another time zone. Now, I know as you're finishing this book, the last thing that you want to think about right now is a second edition. But I, I had this idea um, for part five. What about a part on communication with AGI chatbots, right? So um, artificial general intelligence chatbots, you know, how, how do we communicate well with them? Just a little humor. <laughs> yes, I don't think I'll be writing any more books for a little while at the moment. <laughs> I, I have to say, um, that's a wise choice. Well, okay, so now what comes next? Well, as I said, I don't think I'll be doing any more book writing for a while because it's really kind of taken over my life. And uh, I, this is the first big technical book that I've written. So I've uh, learned a lot of this uh, on this. Uh, there's lots of uh, full summits, many stages of edit. So uh, that's been quite interesting. Um, so I'm planning to sort of stick with the, sort of the hands-on consulting. Um, I particularly enjoy going into businesses and sort of enhancing their architecture practices, um, helping with the training and how all the architecture practices are set up and that kind of thing, and helping them to sort of build uh, evolutionary architectures or architectures that are going to sort of sort of stand better against things that are thrown at them and could also evolve and, and be changed easily. And other things I'm working on, I'm quite keen to develop uh, my ideas for some of these things that I've been touching on in the book, because I could have written an awful lot more in this book. It was originally supposed to be 200 pages, it's now nearly 300, but uh, apparently that's fine. Um, so things like, uh, one of the things I talk about is uh, projects versus products and how if you actually organize around products and teams it gives a lot of benefits compared to organizing around projects the projects don't last very long uh, very often especially with um, knowledge and documentation 
which I talk about in part three, um, notice that documentation gets lost or it's really difficult to find because it's all organised by project. And so I talk about that in the book, but there's also a lot of other benefits to the rest of the business when you start to organise things around products, teams and value streams and that kind of thing. So that's something I'm developing at the moment, but not for another book for a while, I think. Then uh, another aspect I talk about is uh, perspective-driven documentation. And that's that's also in, the, uh, in part three. And the idea with perspective-driven is that you organise the knowledge around the perspectives of the stakeholders. And this is kind of my own principle that I've created myself. And you focus on who you're communicating to and the why. And then you use that to determine what should be communicated rather than the other way around. I think a lot of people just um, produce certain types of diagram because that's kind of what we always do. But the stakeholders need to be able to find and actually understand the information they need when they need it. And I think many people find themselves in one of two situations. Either all the information about a project is in some bloated, huge word processing document or some other similar document, and it's difficult to find what you want or know what version it is or anything like that. Or everything's spread out over many different applications. Some of it's in one SaaS product, some of it's in, uh, in another, and you don't know where to find that information. Or you actually need to go to several different places to get what you need. And so perspective-driven, that organises it into perspectives, which you could call views, but I don't because it's a particularly overloaded word um, in, in architecture. And so each one of these perspectives addresses the needs of a stakeholder and items within that perspective, which might be a diagram or some text or a table, they can all be reused in another perspective. And you can also put perspectives within a perspective and it allows you to sort of use the um, dry principle, don't repeat yourself, in your documentation, but obviously only to the point you need to. Sometimes you might need to have a specific version of something. So you might say if you've um, referenced a particular standard or something like that, which gets updated, you might need to say, right, it's definitely this version of this standard. And so you don't want it to be dry then, you don't want it to be updated. But um, overall, it's easier to maintain. And that's something I'm going to be working a lot more on because I want to make that a lot more practical for people. I want to create uh, some templates in different knowledge management solutions. And that's kind of what I'm looking at at the moment, I suppose. Nice. So for people to get that, they'll have to contact you, I imagine, or... Yeah, Maybe I'll it, probably write something about it at some point. Yeah. But uh, yes. Writing people hurts. People want to talk to me about it yeah. and uh, I can come in and have a look at people's architecture and their current knowledge management. Good. Excellent. So will you be even creating more content on soft skills besides um, 
what you just described? Uh, I'm going to give the the typical um, answer to that. It depends. Um, so obviously, yes, soft skills are vital, um, but I want to stay hands-on with my technical skills as well. So uh, I don't want to sort of be defined only as soft skills. Um, I want to uh, be the problem solver, which is kind of what I do in my business. I don't uh, offer sort of software as a service or um, any particular tool that I think is a silver bullet because there is no silver bullet. So I kind of offer sort of problem solving as a service. I'm going to be uh, running training. I, I run training on the soft skills, but I also run training on various technical skills with architecture as well. And those will be public and I do private training as well for uh, customers. And I'm hoping to do um, some more blogging now. That's something that I haven't really had time to do with uh, with writing the book. And so I'm quite looking forward. I've got a huge list of stuff that I want to write about. And uh, one day I will get some of that going. Excellent. Look forward to that. Well, I have to say this has been a really nice conversation. One thing to think about, well, maybe two things to think about. First of all, I just have to conclude that if you don't sell 1 million books in the first year, I'm going to be disappointed. Not not in you or your book. <laughs> I'll be disappointed in the world of programmers because, you know, software developers, knowledge workers, whatever happens to be applicable in their case, because this is such a necessary book. And I'm not, I mean, yeah, a million readers and a million books in one year, that's really hard to do. But the emphasis is on, if you listen to this podcast, buy Jackie's book and also tell others in leadership positions, knowledge working positions, architects, programmers, read her book. You, you can't lose by reading it. You may have some other ideas too, or you'll want to go back to Jackie's content on her blog posts or something like that later. Contact her, but this book is going to take people a long way toward um, improving communication as knowledge workers, as software developers. The other thing that I wanted to say is I think you could make a real success in having like a diagram linter or compiler. So you could, you know, scan diagrams and say, wow, this is a not such a great diagram. You have an error here. And programmers would love that. So just an idea to throw out there. That sounds like quite a good use of uh, AI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's a thing. I Maybe we will have things like that in the future, but it would be nice just to be able to tell people, okay, there's an acronym. What does that mean? Spell it out or introduce your audience to, you know, if it's a really long word uh, or group of words, you may not do well in trying to produce those words visually, but at least give people a place to find out where, you know, the meaning of, of that word. So a little humor, but on the same, by the same token, you know, I think it's maybe something for the future. Communication won't stop. 
right? I mean, nice. regardless of how we're programming in the future, two years from now, five years from now, next month, communication is the key and communicating with people so that everybody has the same mental picture and definition of what you're working on is extremely important because we all think differently. Our backgrounds are different. We have different learning experiences. When I say a word, you might think of something different than I'm thinking of, but visually is a very good way to bring people's thoughts together. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's why I think that um, collaborative modeling methods, things like event storming and domain storytelling are particularly useful for communication. They allow people to see things visually and come together, even if that's virtually, but they sort of give a visual method of communication for people to use. And um, I've actually used domain storytelling when I'm onboarding to a project so that I've had people describe what the project is and then I create a domain story of it and so I can make sure that I understand it. And sometimes people have said, oh, yeah, I didn't realise that bit. (laughs) It's like, oh, yes, there we go. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we've had such a nice conversation. Thank you for taking time. Thanks again so much for having a discussion with me and we'll look forward to collaborating again. That's brilliant. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I.O. Thanks for listening.